Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and the wonderful Christopher and our guest today is extra awesome because I know him really well and he's got a really awesome topic to talk to us about. Chris, who have we got on today? Well, it sounds like you're interviewing me, but we're not. We're interviewing uh, Grant Hayward, who is an award-winning historian and writer who works for the US Army Center for History and has also is, and he's here to talk about his new book, uh, Romania's Holy War. Well, Harward, not Hayward. Sorry. Oh, I, I, I worked with a guy who had the name spelt the same way and he was Hayward. So sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, hey, well, I've, I've seen it spelled with the Y, but so Harward, not Hayward. And then U.S. Army Center of Military History. Well, my lovely, you've got a disclaimer for us before we get started. Tell us what it is. Well, my disclaimer is that these are my own views and do not represent those of the U.S. Army, uh, Department of Defense, or federal government. So this is not Uncle Sam talking to you. I still find it strange that you're our only guest that has had to do that. Yeah, I think you are the only guest that's ever had to do a disclaimer like that. Well, you're not interviewing interesting enough people then. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, no, maybe we should actually interview some naval people. Ships are cool. Ships are very cool. No. I was joking. (laughs) I can get on board with ships. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God, I'm screwed. (laughs) Anyway, moving on from Boaty Shit. So we're going to be talking today on the podcast on something that we actually don't have or haven't recorded with History Hack before at all and we're, we're going to be doing world war ii stuff which is awesome but we haven't been talking about romanian history no way we've had something on vlad the impaler for sure but that's it that's all we've had on romanian history admiral horthy who was the dictator of romania in the second world war who had been in command of the austro-hungarian navy in the first world war that's oh, hungry uh... hungry damn it <laughs> so no i don't know anything about romania <laughs> Oh, they had funny helmets. They had square helmets, but they were they were they they were very individual. They had Dutch uh, helmets. <laughs> I know. Then yeah, they're like kind of curvy. That's the one. They, they look different to the standard German uh, ones, so they stand out when you look at photos on the eastern front. Yes, the Romanian helmets are different from the German helmets. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I know they got caught at Stalingrad, but that's about that's literally about it. I just know about the Holocaust in Romania and the amount of Polish refugees that ended up in Romania during the Second World War. So that's it, really. 
But we're doing lots more military history today, so I've got Chris on here, so I don't sound like such an idiot because it's more his cup of tea. So moving on to the questions, we've got the Romanian army, we have morale, we have shitty generals, and Romanian apologists. Tell us, what the hell is happening? Well, I think part of it is what we're talking about here is like you know, how little we know about Romania and it adds, kind of leans into it. The fact that Romania, no one really knows much about it means that these German generals after the war, when they write some memoirs and they say a few things about the Romanians, that becomes, you know, basically what the West knows, especially because of the Iron Curtain closing off, you know, archives closing down. But Romania is, is more obscure. It's, it's you know, a country than, let's say, Poland, even in Eastern Europe, right, where Poland has more kind of connections to France, you know, it's you know, center point of the Holocaust, the fighting with the Poles. You know, in the you know, double uh, occupation, all that kind of stuff, where Romania gets kind of sidelined and forgotten. Um, and so, when some German generals come along and say, "Oh, the Romanians, they were just simple peasants who really didn't know what they were fighting for, and their officers were all terrible," and you, know, you know, the best thing, Manstein actually is the, has von Manstein, his memoir is the most kind of kind and even-handed. And even he still is very. Um, uh, dismissive, you know, arrogant towards the Romanians, but he still at least says they did the best they could. They collaborated with us well, you know, uh, unlike the Italians or something like that. And if you look at it, you know, but so like this viewpoint of this kind of blame the Romanians or by a lot of the German generals, except for Manstein, but even he does it, um, that gets inculcated. And then you have a few Romanian national, Romanian diplomats at end up in the West. And so it's very convenient for them to say, oh yeah, we were on board with allying with Hitler. And for those specific diplomats, maybe they weren't, you know, they were, they would have, you know, been more kind of uh, liberal and, you know, kind of less enamored and, you know, less focused on the war, but that obscures the reality of uh, the regime of uh, General Ion Antonescu ruled as a dictator you know, all the soldiers, um, hundreds of thousands of Romanian soldiers who fought, you know, the regime under Antonescu who supported um, not just the war, but also ethnic cleansing in Romanian territory to murder Jews, also deportations of of, of Roma, gypsies later. Um, and so it's only recently that people, you know, because of the, the collapse of communism, that people can get into the archives, start looking at this more. Um, but even then, still, it's still kind of obscure. And so that's one of the reasons why we should talk about it, because Romania is actually this really important um, Axis ally on the Eastern Front. Well, it's completely forgotten. The Holocaust is forgotten in Romania, other places. It's predominantly focused on Poland. But Croatia, Serbia, France, pretty much everywhere, it's just totally forgotten. And especially it's... Unlike with Hungary, which gets occupied, you know, a lot of those other countries are puppet states or Vichy that's half occupied, half, you know, client state. Romania has retained the sovereignty. And so when it's perpetrating what is called cleansing the terrain, you know, murdering tens of thousands of Jews and then deporting the rest to camps further east in uh, Romanian occupied Ukraine called Transnistria, that's independent Romanian policy at the beginning of the invasion of the Soviet Union, 41, 42. Um, that's not being, that's not because the Germans are forcing them. It's not because they're occupied. As I think that adds to, you know, 
how much this is forgotten that there's another country murders you know 300,000 Jews on its own volition uh, on the East, uh, as part of you know fighting on the Eastern Front. They were um, the most invested of the um, pro-German powers in the Eastern Front. For they supplied a lot more men than Italy and Hungary. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they if you look at the invasion, they provide two field armies um, at the start and from day one. Like from they joined them in the initial bombardment on 22nd of June 1941. Um, whereas uh, Italy declares war, but it takes them a couple months to get there, and they send a corps. You know. Hungary waits a few days, then it declares war, it sends about a corps. Only Finland matches Romania, and it, but only for um, kind of the summer. And by fall, it's starting to kind of demobilize, and, and it kind of fights a low, more low-intensity war in 42, 43, 44. Whereas Romania also kind of has to send some of its troops home um, after, in the winter, but it remobilizes. And of course, in Stalingrad, you have this major contribution they also keep troops into 43 and 44 a major contribution in 44 again when they're fighting um so yeah romania plays a really big important part when looking at manpower um on the eastern front you know it's it's most committed both to fighting the red army but also to this other aspect of the eastern front which is also uh, murdering jews and uh, participating in brutal anti-partisan warfare, like such as in Crimea, where Romanian mountain troops helped occupy for uh, nearly, uh, you know, two and a half years. Um, they were participating in burning villages, executing partisans, whether that's a soldier who doesn't surrender immediately or a civilian, you know, um, and doing some pretty terrible stuff alongside the Germans, as well as when the SS are uh, carrying out the final solution, and they're doing most of the shooting in Crimea, but in certain cases, the Romanians are pulling security or helping round up Jews. And in certain cases, they're actually murdering the Jews themselves. Let's stick with this. Talk us through what they're actually doing. Again, because this is very little talked about and our listeners deserve to know a little bit more, especially what the Romanian army was actually doing, trying to prove its loyalty to Hitler's war of annihilation. Yeah, well, it's they have their own uh, reasons, right? So Hitler has a war of annihilation. It's this race war, right? I think this is kind of an easy way to sum summarize it. That Hitler is fighting a race war in the East, right? It's a, against Jewish Slavic menace, um, you know, in tying in communism there. Uh, the Romania couches it as a holy war rather than a race war. The kind of hard-bitten racism and scientific uh, racism of the Nazis hasn't really percolated down into Romanian society. So their focus is more about fighting Jewish communism and identifying more with some of the locals to a certain extent, you know, spreading, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, kind of bringing that back, you know, that the communists had banished it and destroyed it in, in, you know, Holy Russia. And Romania kind of sees itself as the new bulwark of Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and so they have their own motivations, but it dovetails well. And so that's why they, they're so committed. So it's not only about proving themselves to the Germans, it's about their own motivations, their own ideas. And so there's kind of phases. So initially at the beginning of the invasion, the Romanians are retaking territory, right? So this is a big point that in 1940, you know, as long we, we everyone was once again, this is Romania gets forgotten. Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Everyone knows that divides Poland, right? And everyone knows that Poland eventually gets 
partition between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Yet that also leads to, you know, the Winter War, which gets remembered, um, and the occupation of the Baltic states, which generally gets mentioned. It also results in assigning away parts of uh, northern and eastern Romania, uh, northern Bukovina and Bessarabia, these uh, chunks of territory. Bessarabia had been part of the, the Tsarist Empire, and the Soviets wanted it back. Plus, they wanted to take a little bit more um, of this uh, Bukovina, northern Bukovina, which had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so that's also in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, at least the, Bessara the, the part about Bessarabia. Uh, the Germans are surprised when the Soviets also go for this extra territory um, in northern Bukovina. But so when the, in 1941, when the remains are coming back, they have this idea that during um, the withdrawal in 1940, the Jews had supported the Soviets and had led, you know, bandits against the, and shot at them and, and incited locals to, you know, kind of harass the Romanians as they were withdrawing. It's because anti-Semitism, anti-communism pervaded Romanian society. There's a widespread belief in the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism. You know, you have religion and nationalism all wrapped up in there. And so when this first phase, when war kicks off in 41, in summer 41, when they're going into these, retaking these country, these areas that they see as being, they're liberating, part of liberation is we're going to murder Jews in revenge. You know, uh, also some Slavs, you know, some local collaborators, ethnic Romanians, but prim primarily they're going after Jews. Um, and SS, the Einsatzgruppe Day, they show up um, and they're kind of running around in the background, um, but they're really not directing things. They get into conflicts. They want the, the Romanians to kill different Jews. They kind of have to convince the Romanian uh, soldiers and gendarmes to you know, allow them to do certain things. There's some German troops as well, of course. Um, there's a German 11th Army alongside the Romanian 2nd and uh, sorry, the Romanian 3rd and 4th Armies. So there's some German troops there as well in, as they're going through, and they're also targeting Jews. But this is all kind of a, this is more of a Romanian project. And once the army sweeps through, then you have the gendarmes that come with explicit orders to kill Jews, and the ones that survive, you're going to deport them. So that kind of then there's a second phase is once you cross into Ukraine, you know, the Soviet Union proper, um, the Romanian army kind of, it gets busy. It's The Soviets aren't retreating as quickly. They're putting up more resistance. The Romanian Third Army and Fourth Army are getting sucked into more battle, either having to march and fight long distances or get involved in a bloody battle for Odessa. So you have less time and there's kind of like this less lack, there's lack of kind of motivation to, for revenge, right? Because these are Soviet Jews who don't really have anything to do with um, 1940, these Romanian Jews that they're accused of treachery. But very quickly, they began to say, hey, we're taking casualties at Odessa. We're taking the, the, the Soviet soldiers, the Russians, as they're called, are still fighting. Why are they still fighting? Well, it's because of the Jews, the Jewish commissar, the you know, the political officer with the pistol to the neck of the Russian is forcing him to fight. Our casualties at Odessa, which are high, they take like 90,000 casualties in two months. And about a third of those are, are, are dead. And the other, you know, two thirds are wounded. Um, they're going to blame that on the Jews, right? It's not the fact that there's Soviet patriotism, belief in communism. No, it's because of, you know, and sure there's coercion, of course, the Soviet system, but 
this, it's this myth though of there's like reports of a Jewish battalion, a, like a death battalion, rocking around Odessa, you know. As, and so when the Romanian army gets in there, they actually have a, a massacre of of because uh, Soviets mine a building, the Romanians take it over. It's a little complicated, but long story short, like the, they put a headquarters in this old NKVA uh, building, and then it blows up. And once that kills a Romanian general and you know dozens of soldiers and some German uh, officers, the Romanian army then shoots and kills and burns um, thousands of Jews in Odessa. So there's this new reason for revenge, but it's all based on kind of the same kind of idea of this worldview of Jewish Bolshevism's out there. And then that area which between the knee, uh, the Nistru and the Boog it's turned over to the Romanians it's called Transnistria. It's not related to what you're seeing in the news now. Transnistria today is a much smaller uh, breakaway republic where this is a much bigger occupied territory. This happened to share the same name because they're both over the Nistru, like over the, the Nistru River. And so, but then there's like the third kind of section, which I was talking about earlier with Crimea, where like the Germans this is their territory, they're occupying it, they're setting policy, they're actually even telling the, the Romanians, hey, Jewish policy is SS policy, so hands off. Like you actually have Romanians uh, units having to turn over Jews that they've taken as hostages to shoot um, in case of partisan attacks, um, to turn them over to the Germans um, in Southern Ukraine and like Melitopol, Mariupol, um, places like that. Um, so the Germans kind of are, don't trust the Romanians. They don't seem as ideologically motivated enough, you know, as you know that they're bribable, um, which is kind of ridiculous. I'm like, they're, I don't think they're not as hard bitten, you know, Nazis as Nazis are. Uh, but I mean, plenty of Germans are bribable too. Um, but so like in, but in that area, the Germans are kind of doing most of the killing and they're, or, you know, that's part of the final solution. But then the Romanians are very happy to work with this and provide security, uh, help with roundups, uh, because the Romanians still see this idea of Jews are communists, so Jews are partisans, partisans are Jews. You kill the Jews, then the partisan movement isn't going to be a problem. So it's kind of there's like kind of three distinct chunks there of like this revenge killing in the beginning in Romanian territory that's based on what happened in 1940. Then there's this, you know, killing and there's camps in Transnistria that the Romanians take over and they're still kind of in charge of the Odessa massacre. And then you have this third that's in, you know, occupied Ukraine and later southern Russia, northern um, Caucasus. The Romanians are kind of told lay off the Jews because that's what the, that's the SS issue. But the Romanians still participate. Um, and. In certain cases, you know, during Crimea, like the Soviets and, you know, kind of have a counterattack land during the winter of 41, 42, they're landing on the beaches and taking over cities. So when the Romanians help take back some of these cities, they often, one of the things they do is start shooting any Jews that they find left, regardless of what the Germans have ordered about the Jews being SS policy. It's like, no, we've got some Jews here. We're just going to shoot them um, on the beaches you know, as they're trying to evacuate with the, the, the Red Army that's being pushed back. One of the um, 
things about I, I was going to ask about the morale of the Romanian army because I know and this goes back to like the German portrayals with Stalingrad specifically which is the only one I really know about the Romanian Hungarians and Italians in the rear of Sixth Army uh, get crushed by the Soviets and there's always been this sort of suggestion that well they were second line troops their morale was really poor they were bound to get it was quite a weak spot and a natural thing to cut the Romanians off but the morale wasn't as low as is suggested is it no i mean i think saying that they're second-rate troops that's perfectly true i mean there's you know they had they didn't have as many anti-tank guns they're not as motorized i mean the german army itself you know right isn't that uh as motorized and mechanized and well equipped as you know people kind of came to believe after the war um but they are second hand they but the 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 kind of the accusation is the Romanians don't put up a fight as well as the Italians and Hungarians um, along the Don. And that's really nothing could be further from the truth. Like the morale was actually pretty good. Um, the Romanian army is actually concerned about them. The minute they get in, they, they cross the Dniester and start going deeper into actual Soviet territory, the Antonescu regime is concerned about morale. They're like, you know, they, they themselves are wondering if, you know, the soldiers will fight and, you know, what they're thinking about the war. And they actually pump up propaganda and they they have like they're asking for reports. They have like kind of um, um, you know they get intelligence officers to kind of find out what soldiers are thinking. And there's really no sign that the Romanian army uh, out on the Don River or on the Kamuk Steppe, you know, kind of outside of Stalingrad, is suffering some kind of major, you know, morale problem. They're fighting. Um, they're suffering from ammunition shortages. I mean, that's a major issue because the Germans are running out of their own uh, supplies and ammunition. And of course, they're going to hoard it for themselves. Right. And it's actually the constant issue where German Sixth Army is constantly trying to, like, push the responsibility for supplying the Romanians onto, you know, army, you know, another army or another or on the army group because they want They don't want to have to be bothered with that. Um, and so it's more like that there's a, you know. Yes, the Romanian army's in you know less well trained, less well equipped, but it's it's you have equipment shortage. It's not a shortage of morale. And the Romanians, when the Soviets attack, they put up a fight, but they're completely overwhelmed, you know, numerically, you know, especially technologically. You know, the Soviets have, you know, all these tanks, t- tons of artillery. The Romanians are firing over tons of stories you can find of them like fighting as much as possible. Sure, some break and run, but like a German unit would break and run in you know similar circumstances. And you know, the, the Marshal Antonescu says that you know when the Germans are complaining, he actually says like, "Hey, I have reports of German units you know breaking and running before the the, the Soviet onslaught." You know, this isn't just us. Um, and so I yeah, I mean that is kind of how it goes down though. That it's implied that the Romanians just aren't, they're not they don't even try. And that's the, and that, you know, they're let down, but, you know, it's not accurate. And I think even with looking at the Italians and Hungarians, I think I did a uh, kind of a panel at a conference a couple years ago with an Italian and Hungarian historian. And they too, I mean, I don't think they were quite as, their morale was quite as good, quite as motivated, but they also were much higher than people uh, care to remember or acknowledge. 
When it comes to ideology, we know a lot about we know a lot about the German ideology, why they did what they did, why, where, and how. But what about the Romanian army? What was their ideology like? Why were they so committed to doing what they actually did? Well, I think it comes down, like I was saying, this idea of holy war. And it's kind of this mixture of nationalism, religion, especially Christianity, or Eastern Orthodox Christianity, but minority ethnic, you know, other minorities, like, uh, you know, whether it's Baptists or Catholics, they can get on board with a lot of this, you know, kind of this viewpoint. Um, but also then anti-Semitism and anti-communism, you, you know, and I think... Um, one of the things that some other historians have pointed out about like Nazi Germany is one of the reasons fascism is successful is because it can play on these types of things, these more traditional um, uh, ideas and, you know, whether it's nationalism or Christianity or something might be a little bit more new, like uh, anti-communism there. And then of course, anti-Semitism is, is new slash based on ancient um, anti-Jewish hatreds. So it's like, Fascism kind of grows out of that and radicalizes that, and you can see that you can see that these ideologies have really penetrated Romanian society because it develops a very strong fascist movement, one of the largest in Europe during the interwar period. Now it doesn't come into power. Uh, General Antonescu is able to get into power, and he has more of a military dictatorship with some kind of fascistic trappings. But he crushes his the fascists, uh, the the. Legion of the Ar the Legion of the Archangel Michael, because he sees him as a threat to his power. So you don't actually have a fascist regime there. But I think that shows that there's there's fertile ground for fascism and that radicalized debate. And so this holy war this is very is is established on very firm foundation of nationalism, religion, uh, anti-Semitism, and anti-communism. Right? And that's very similar to what a lot of German soldiers were fighting to. In the German case, you gotta add in kind of an extra layer of, of racism, you know, that, that, yeah, that's this kind of extra thing that, you know, that those racist ideas and eugenics and Nazi ideas have more permeated German society and kind of, you know, uh, over there in, in general, whereas the Romanian, average Romanian peasant didn't know much about kind of race science or uh, those, there doesn't mean there wasn't racism, right? They still judge like there's uh, Roma gypsies and they'd be, you know, for, you know, kind of discriminated against because of the skin color, but not kind of this understanding of, you know, the world and the Nazi worldview of like the Aryan race and the Jewish Semitic, you know, dark races, the Slavs being, you know, untermentioned, you know, that's not really on the radar. The Slavs in the Romanian sense are an, another nation. And actually in some ways you, they can be kind of, equally good they're they, they're they can be christians right is they can find that identity where the germans don't really kind of see that but i think that leads to this idea of this crusade so you know it's nazi propaganda to talk about a crusade against bolshevism but it really does resonate with a lot of people and i think that's one of the important things to get from looking at romania is understanding how many europeans really could get behind um a nazi dominated europe because of this kind of crusading, anti-communist, anti-Semitic um, rhetoric. Because you see this evil, Asiatic, Jewish, Bolshevik threat to Western Christian civilization, which means so, you know, that, that resonates. So even this simple soldier, you know, a peasant soldier who doesn't know much about kind of some of these bigger ideas can understand that idea, kind of see 
a satanic Soviet Union and see that I'm not fighting just to regain some territory that the Soviets took from us in 1940. I'm fighting for this bigger thing, European, you know, protection, civilization, Christianity, all those things powering these soldiers. Um, and when you have that anti-Semitic aspect wrapped up to it, then that means you can justify very easily, you know, murdering these people because they're part of the enemy, right? They're part of this global threat that's, you know, so it's not just a threat to your country. Um, so you're serving your country and the world by fighting the Red Army and... Can I just add a quick comment before Chris jumps in with this question? I've mentioned it before, but I find this whole idea of Slavs incredibly interesting. Because you've got your three types of Slavs. You've got your Eastern Slavs. You have Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. Then you have your Central Slavs, which is Poland, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic. Then you have your Southern Slavs, where you have Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, etc. And in between that, you have Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary. Like, what the friggin' hell happened there? Anyway, enough of me rambling on about something that has nothing to do with what we're really talking about. It's still debated. I don't, I don't want to tread in those waters, but it's still hotly debated about what, how and why those, those you know, the Hungarians and the Romanians still ended up not being Slavified, or were they Slavified at one point? Or It's easy for the German military historian. All I have to say is they're non-Germans. So... <laughs> <laughs> That'll get me in trouble for a whole other bunch of reasons. Um, but the, with a the, with the fascist dictatorship, there's there there is the myth, especially with the, like the Wehrmacht, that they are um, incredibly strict with their soldiers. Uh, failure to complete uh, to follow orders will involve will have you shot or um, suffer from severe penalties, which isn't necessarily true with the Wehrmacht in the beginning part of the war. But the Romanians are a bit harsher. They still have corporal punishment and go for capital punishment a bit more but it does get exaggerated doesn't it yeah so i mean flogging yeah i mean no one the germans don't beat well at least not i mean there's probably some beating going on there and there but um uh, execution wise though like yeah capital punishment the Romanian army is actually it, it will shoot soldiers i mean this isn't like they'll shoot they probably shot a few thousand uh mostly for you know especially like self-mutilation some desertion um, but they would do it. Whereas like the U S army shot one guy for desertion in the whole war, uh, something that's similarly low for like the British army. Like they don't, they won't do that. And so the Romanian army is, you know, comparative to like the West, it will still shoot, but compared to like the the Nazi Germany or the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union, you know, red army and the Wehrmacht shoot oh, tens of thousands of their own men for, you know, failure in combat right they're not doing it for you know if you won't shoot a jew or something but if you're seen as cowardly or desert you know in the german context or if like the soviets you know like you lose a battle or and even the soviets decide after a while like like better to have punishment battalions you know these penal battalions and kind of not shoot these guys and said give me you know, put them in these battalions and then eventually they get out after you did serve enough time so, so the so relative to the West, the Romanian army, yeah, it's stricter. It will shoot. It will shoot soldiers uh, for desertion um, and self mutilation. It's not as murderous as you know the Wehrmacht or the Red Army. Flogging is an interesting case because there's kind of implied and even sometimes open argument that um, 
Yeah, that's the only motivation. It's just all coercion. Of course, like every army relies on coercion to some extent, uh, right? I mean, sure, soldiers are gonna are gonna be there in part because if they don't, they could be shot or put set in prison. And it's in and it's interesting in the remaining case, they will actually like threaten to shoot a lot and not actually follow through. And so it's kind of almost a cliche, like very early on, they'll be talking about shooting. So it's, and then they will shoot sometimes and there's actually on some of the orders, make sure to publicize that we executed these guys, you know? And so like, they, they're kind of doing it like, you know, kind of as an example, right? You know, kind of reinforce the coercion. So I don't want to underplay it too much. There is of course, but every army, you know, there is that kind of, you know, uh, behind the scenes possibility of punishment. Um, with flogging, it's a bit more, um, you know, immediate. But what I still think it can be overemphasized. And some of these historians are like, well, yeah, they just don't want to get whipped. And they're not actually being whipped. They, they're actually, it's kind of interesting that in the First World War, you know, Romanian officers could just beat their men, like, on a whim. Um, there's like a French, I read like a French um, soldier who was in Romania in World War One. Uh, on a, as part of a military mission, he saw a Romanian officer with like a iron handled cane just beat two NCOs like in the face and stuff. And he was like, in France, this would never happen. And so the Romanian army is actually got rid of, trying to get rid of that over the interwar period because, you know, they're trying to like, you know, have more rights and citizenship rights to to people. You can't treat your soldiers as peasants anymore. Uh, there's still some of that in the Romanian army, but the flogging is much more regulated or supposed to be, and they're trying to make it where it's supposed to be like kind of, the, there'll be a doctor there, it uses a belt, you know, they kind of will bend the guy over and they'll flog him on their hindquarters, you know, their hind side. Um, in one case, though, I found that, um, they were like, maybe on their back as well, but in one case, I found an officer who found some soldiers who had raped a Ukrainian woman. Now, it's like, and it's an interesting case because it's like previously they're probably raping Jewish women and, you know, there's no one's going to get punished for that. But once they cross into Ukraine and now you're, this is a, you know, kind of more Christian country and these are Ukrainians, even he found out that they he raped a woman, he had them get flogged, but using entrenching tools. So like the little shovels. Other than the, the spiked ones, the really, the folding ones. Yeah, the little folding shovels, the little, Jeez. yeah, and so he said, like, and he and like the the woman, according to this guy, this officer's diary, he was a major, you know, the the woman whose daughter was raped was there with her daughter watching because he drew up once again. It's very kind of ritualized, you know. For to set an example, you know, he had these guys get flogged, you know, with kind of the shovels. I'm not sure, like the flat ends, the flat side of it. Um, you know, and that the woman like the kind of asked for it to stop, um, and he said, "No, I, you know, I made sure that these like guys got the full punishment." So the, there are situations like that where it's, it could be pretty pretty brutal, um, but it's like it was kind of accepted. It was more culturally accepted, whereas in the West you could never get away with that kind of stuff. Not saying all the Romanian soldiers liked it. Um, and they would especially be angry, especially if the, if the officers are seen as be kind of abusing that authority and kind of going back because there are there are investigations of like 
officers, you know, you know, like, oh, some soldier turns up with a broken jaw, you know, and that's not good for, you know, you don't want, you know, to lose soldiers because an officer lost his temper and punched, you know, an enlisted guy and broke his jaw, you know, that then, then he's out, has to go to the hospital. So, um, but so that is an aspect, but that's, and the other thing I want to point out about this is that this is usually not in combat. Like this is usually after combat, you're this such kind of punishment is kind of more about sustaining kind of like being living on the front, you know, it actually had been flogging had been um, uh, taken out as a punishment in the, in the thirties and they reintroduced it in 41 uh, during the, during the fighting. Um, so it's kind of seen, it's kind of could you get old kind of traditional officers kind of get in charge. There's kind of some changeover in leadership. And so you kind of, but it's also, you know, this understanding, oh, the, we're kind of want to make sure that uh, we maintain discipline on the front. And so, uh, but it's often, it's not usually for like combat things. It's usually for, you know, like this, or it's like you're in the rear, you know, soldiers are getting, you know, you want to keep discipline that way. And that's usually kind of, and the example of the shovels is pretty extreme. I haven't, usually it's, you know, less. Um, and then there's oftentimes, but like the, you would still have, I found in like a diary of a NCO of him getting like kind of slapped upside the head a few times because he overloaded a cart. You know, the office, the veterinary officer came up and was like, what the fuck are you doing? Slapped upside the head like five times. And, you know, that was it. So it's like, the, so it, it's a complicated thing. Um, and it, you know, but it, it does, it definitely plays a role, but I still think we shouldn't overemphasize it. I still think that ideologically there's kind of these big reasons that are driving why Romanians believe in and support this war while, and, and you know, and sure at certain points there's going to be, you know, officers using um, uh, corporal punishment to try to reinforce that, but it, it stops working at a certain point. There's actually an, uh, a, a report I found that's really interesting from like Crimea they're talking about like, hey, like you could shoot me. Like the officer saying that he's like, I can't do anything. These guys are just tired. I can't keep them fighting, you know, in these these conditions. But and you know, and soldiers have guns. If you beat your, you beat them too much, you know, you could take a bullet in the back. You know, that's yeah. And so, it's a fine line there of, of you know. I think it's you know, it's easy to try to like say, oh, that's the only reason why they're fighting because they could get flogged. And I, I don't think that's accurate, but we definitely need to, you know, acknowledge that this played a role. Sticking to the same idea of punishment, leading on to this idea of rehabilitation within the army, basically rehabilitation for soldiers who have been done for theft or uh, minor infractions, that kind of thing. Tell us what happened to them and why were they done for these sorts of minor infractions? Yeah, so the Romanian kind of like the there's this existing. It's originally just for officers, kind of like this. In the in the military discipline code, it's like an officer if he does something cowardly can be stripped of rank, and then kind of made into a private. If he goes and does something brave, he can be rehabilitated, you know, and regain his previous rank and position. And they begin doing this kind of here and there with officers, and then as the war kind of builds up and you have kind of some military military prisons start filling up with guys who caught going AWOL or really trying to desert or, you know, stealing stuff, uh, be, you know, 
other infractions, they were like, well, it takes, it's kind of a waste of manpower to have them sitting around in jail. And so they start applying this also to enlisted men. And some of the, actually the first ones are like, you know, former legionary, like pro-fascist um, uh, officers or like just fascists in prisons in Romania. They're actually like petitioning when the war breaks out, like, hey, send us to the front and let us be rehabilitated that way. And they let some, and they, they have very specific rules saying these guys can't serve as officers because they don't want these fascists being in charge because they don't trust them. Uh, even the, but the thing is that they have to repeatedly order don't make them officers, which means they're being made officers because the army needs the manpower. And these guys are usually more educated. Or a lot of these fascists that are in prison are the hardcore ones who are more educated and you know so they have skills. And so so the fact that you have to continue, you have to repeatedly order don't use them means that they're being used. Um, and so you kind of have two tracks of this rehabilitation: one on the front, where kind of the the generals there, well, kind of the court marshals there, they'll sentence somebody, and then uh, generals will then commute the sentence, reassign them to a cavalry, cavalry or an infantry unit. So, like, they might have been, you know, in a, a radio unit, gotten drunk, hit an officer, or something like that. And so then that guy gets sanctioned at a court martial, and instead of going to prison, they commute that and reassign them to as a as like a one or two z you know, kind of replacement into a frontline combat unit. And so you kind of get these guys and they'll, and that kind of works actually to a certain extent because, you know, some of these guys, they just made a mistake. A lot of, you know, win a fight, you know, they're surrounded, if they're surrounded, kind of integ integrated with a bigger unit. Those other guys will keep an eye on them, make sure like they're not doing anything fishy and it can kind of work. Um, then there's another aspect to this where they have, uh, soldiers kind of in Romania because you know the border because the front keeps going further and further away right and so eventually initially you have like so you have some guys who have been earlier on are in prisons or military prisons in Romania and so they get sent to a special camp to, for in 1942 they create this new camp a training center um, in in Romania itself and they create entire battalions four and four battalions about a thousand men each and these are like 78% soldiers who have been mostly it's like theft or desertion, but there's some who are like officers who have been sentenced for striking their soldiers, in, in fact, or they're soldiers for striking their officers. Or uh, there's a few like cases of like manslaughter, <laughs> some weird, you know, things like that. And then um, added to these, this special camp, it's in Sarata, this uh, little town that. Incidentally, it's chosen because all the ethnic Germans were pulled out when the Soviets occupied 1940. All the ethnic Germans like were evacuated and resettled, I think, up in Poland. And then when the Iranians came through in 41, they murdered all the Jews. So this town, which had been mostly German and Jewish, is pretty much empty. So they turn it into a um, training center. Um, anyway, and so in addition to the mostly kind of soldiers with infractions, they start emptying out um, uh, a concentration camp with political prisoners, mostly legionaries, fascists, um, who were actually held, of most of them in Tuzhgoju, uh, which is actually a place that earlier was a internment camp for Polish uh, soldiers escaping in 39. So 
kind of began as a place where it's like, we'll put these soldiers, Polish soldiers here, uh, they'll escape. And then later on, it got turned into a kind of a real actual concentration camp, you know, or, you know, for political prisoners and Jews and kind of complicated history, probably deserves a book, and but it hasn't been written. And then on top of that, they start emptying out the prisons. So you get a few just like common criminals in this, these, and uh, Sarata. And so these guys are just, you know, thieves and cutthroats and whatever. And so it's an interesting place. Um, and like they, we got some interesting reports. A lot of the officers who get the, so like the officers and NCOs aren't, you know, they're there to train. So, but they're often, they're the ones that aren't liked or kind of, don't, you know, in their unit. So they get sent when, when they're looking for training personnel to train all these rehabilitation, you know, soldiers and political prisoners and even criminals and kind of don't send their best guys or people they don't really like to this to do this. And so they're not they're they're kind of upset to be there, you know, training these guys. Um and but even these battalions, they send them out. Um three of them um end up around Stalingrad just in time. They fight uh, several of them are destroyed during the battle. One of them goes to the Caucasus. Um, they perform fairly well in combat. Um, they actually get lots of iron crosses. Um, uh, but like when they're not in combat and then they kind of tend to cause problems with the locals and, you know, um, steal stuff and rape and pillage a little bit more. Um, and so eventually uh, there's a couple more of these battalions form. Um, they're kind of eventually broken up because they realize that if you it, these guys are kind of their motivation is kind of less this uh you know it's not, not as good right as an, a soldier is volunteer or kind of voluntary more voluntary on the on the front especially as the war goes bad and so they kind of start breaking up these battalions into smaller groups you know companies and plugging them in um you know as as time goes along and then they, can, they kind of wind down the program although it exists all the way until uh, 44, 40, 45, they still have uh, this this uh, training camp for some of these rehabilitation soldiers. So it's an interesting like thing that no one ever talks about, even in Romanian history, Romanian military histories, they almost never mention these guys, but it's a very interesting um, aspect um, of kind of this penal, because they're not really penal anymore because they've all been released. It's not the same as the Soviets, um, but it's, it's relatively successful. It's another way where you, you know, you get manpower, you know, when you're, they're short for men, you, you know, you find ways and find ways to, to find some soldiers to act as cannon fodder. Yeah. You got kind of overlook their behavior behind the lines as long as they, uh, absorb bullets and fight as and when they need to. <laughs> right. Oh, and that's one more interesting thing is that because of racial discrimination, uh, Roma, you know, gypsy soldiers, and were and then gypsies in like uh society were often you know given harsher sentences and you kind of just or tried and tried by court martial in general like a, a romanian soldier might steal something and he'll get away with it but like a gypsy soldier in the Romanian army oh hey you dirty gypsy you're still in this that and the other and he gets you know sentenced and sent so a fair number of these soldiers in especially at sarata were actually um, uh, uh, Roma, you know, because of this unequal um, uh, sentencing of 
of them because of their race. Are there many Roma in the Romanian army? Oh, it's hard to pin down the number, but yeah, there was like probably um, thousands, tens of thousands. I mean, there was a large minority, Roma minority in Romania itself. Um, only a small portion were still nomadic, which would have been hard for the army to, you know, conscript because you don't have an address for them. But the, the the ones who were sedentary or, you know, just living in the cities like or farming villages like anyone else were conscripted. And there wasn't any kind of I've only found in all my research, I only found one document that listed um uh they can call it, they call them gypsy, it's Tigan, uh, as like a separate category. Like, a, like they, because they, the Romanian army is concerned about ethnicity. So there's lots of reports that break down like Romanian, Hungarian, ethnic Germans, you know, ethnic Bulgarians, and they'll never include Roma. Like they're just kind of integrated into um, the Rome, the Romanian. So they're, it's a strange like, uh, kind of contrast that they're discriminated against, but they're also probably some of the most assimilated of all the minorities in Romania, you know, and um, they'll often get um, kind of picked because there's a lot of them are, you know, there's a stereotype of them being musical. They'll be picked uh, to like be kind of do musical stuff, like be in regimental bands or be assigned as Batman to the officers. It's often, you know, like, okay, you kind of, because it goes kind of back to the idea of the Roma were slaves up until the, in Romania until the 1860s. But, um, you know, Romanian soldiers are also assigned as Batman, but there was kind of a, pretty common that they would select the gypsy soldier to be the one who would, you know, do all that menial labor for the officers, like, you know, digging the, you know, foxhole and cooking his dinner and that kind of stuff. How did that work when the, because obviously Nazi racial policy was against Romanese as well. Uh, how did that work with the Romanian regime when they start deporting them as well? Yeah, so, I mean, well, the Nazis, I mean, they would have probably seen the Romanians in general as, as gypsies. This comes, you know, oftentimes they kind of would slant, you know, kind of racialize them that way and just call them like a gypsy army. Russians, the Soviets do that too. Um, kind of arrogance towards the Romanians. Is, but there's, so the Romanian uh, they Romania they they decide on their own initiative to start deporting some of their their Roma population to Transnistria. It's not under any kind of pressure from uh, the Germans. But once again, they focus first on nomadic, which again, like the the Ministry of Defense doesn't push back against this because they're not going to those they aren't useful to the war effort, right? They're not you can't conscript them, you can't really put them in factories or anything like that. So like they kind of accept this idea of we're going to resettle them was a euphemism put them in colonies you know to labor you know put them to work in transnistria and some of the some of the very same camps where jews have been deported and murdered uh, earlier um and then they start to they do a second wave and so there's like something like like ten thousand nomadic gypsies um and then there's a second wave where they start targeting quote-unquote criminal Gypsies who are the um, uh, Roma, who are sedentary, who are assimilated in cities, but they're supposedly criminal elements, right? You're not just they're not supposed to be wholesale, but oftentimes, you know, the the, the gendarmes and police just started rounding up anybody who was dark skinned, and it was you know they're supposed to be exempt, exemptions, right? If you have a Roma family and their son is on the front with the Romanian army, he, they're not supposed to be deported, but they were. 
oftentimes. So like you'll, there are these tragic, tragic stories about a Roma soldier who'd been fighting for two years, survived Stalingrad, comes back. He's actually, um, you know, in Transnistria where, where his unit's refitting after taking terrible casualties. This guy's suffered a lot. And then he finds out his family has been deported to Transnistria and half of them are dead. Uh, because they don't survive the winter, the Romanian authorities. These aren't real. These the colonies are just concentration camps, and they allow them to die. Um, it's really, really sad. Uh, and you know, it, the Ministry of Defense starts pushing back against a third um, effort to do deport more Roma because they understand that the the Ministry of the Interior, who's in charge of this, is not is kind of randomly targeting in many cases um, Roma population and that they're having this backlash. And so there are always reports about, you know, soldiers on the front, like in Crimea, you know, in 40, you know, 43, finding out their family or 42, finding out their families are being deported. Right. And then you talk about morale, you know, buster. And then interestingly, there's even some of these uh, Roma gypsies in the Serata camp, for rehabilitation. And um, the orders are specifically that if the families are deported, then technically the government doesn't make a mistake. So um, if there are the, the sold, if, the, if there's a, if they have a family member in the army, he should be deported kind of to, to Transnistria as well. So these guys are like, hey, shouldn't we go meet, go with our families instead of being here in this rehabilitation camp? They're like, no, this doesn't apply to you. You have to stay. We're going to send you to the front. You have to fight. It's, it's, it's a really brutal treatment um, of these people. And so of the kind of 25,000 uh, Roma who are deported, about half of them never come back. And that's out of a population of probably about a quarter of a million, maybe a little bit more. It's kind of hard to get some of the numbers because Roma sometimes wouldn't identify as such on the census uh, for various reasons. Were there any women in the Romanian army? No. One. Oh, there was one woman in the Romanian army. So the Romanian army didn't set up an, a women's auxiliary corps. So, but they needed women power. And so they went to the Red Cross. It's very traditional gender roles. So they would go to the, the Red Cross. And then there were some of them, a few thousand that deployed with the army, you know, into, uh, onto the front, you know. But the Romanian army didn't have any kind of auxiliary. But the thing is, in the First World War, there was one Romanian woman who was able to um, get royal support. Her name was Catarina Teodoriu. And, you know, she kind of became a soldier, became an officer, dressed as a man, was killed in combat, becomes this big hero in World War One. And apparently they tried to, for propaganda reasons, to recreate this because there's some women who are petitioning to join the army. Um, and one of them um, gets uh, selected, allegedly, according to the, the press reports, like personally by Antonescu. And she's sent to get uh, training at the headquarters of the Mountain Corps and sent to the front uh, in Crimea, which is more occupation duty by that point. And then we don't really know what happens to her. I'm, her name escapes me right now. It's like, um, I have to look it up. But um, she, so she, but she was officially like a soldier. She, you know, from private, got a promotion to corporal. Um, 
but the Romanian army is kind of retrograde in that aspect where they don't um, want women, you know, they, the, the only way they use them is kind of as nurses. And then the only other aspect is that the Romanian army organizes um, kind of these theater groups for the front and um, several of them are mixed. So you have about a dozen women who go with, you know, this, these theater troops to entertain the troops in Transnistria, southern Ukraine, Crimea. I think some even go as far as southern Russia. It's, you know, and they kind of put on spectacles, you know, sing, dance, acrobatics, that kind of stuff. So we get to, yeah, August 1944, and uh, um, like Italy, Romania swaps sides. But it's not voluntary, is it? They they get defeated by the Soviets and have a armistice forced on them. Yeah, I think this is a really important point because it's easy kind of, there's kind of easy to mock. They always switch sides. Obviously, you know, this shows how the Romanians are duplicitous, opportunistic, untrustworthy Balkan types, which is kind of what most people see this as. Or it's used as proof. Oh, look, they really never wanted to be part of the, of the axis. See, they switch sides. Well, the thing is, right, they only switch sides after over three years of fighting. Um, they're fighting up to the very last minute. Um, it's actually a small group of conspirators un, uh, organized by the king that carry out a coup, a palace coup, basically. And they do that timed with a major Soviet offensive. So like the Romanian army is being crushed and the German army along with it in Romania are both being crushed. So the Romanian officers, but the officer corps is kept out. They're not, they are not told about this conspiracy because the king is very concerned that it, it would be betrayed and you would have what happened to Horthy, um, the, the dictator of Hungary, right? That the, the, the Germans catch on that he's considering trying to exit the Axis and they occupy the country and put in a puppet regime. So the monarch is so paranoid that the army will kind of do the same thing, you know, that he keeps it very tight to the chest. There's a few officers kind of out of favor and only a couple who are like, you know, actual like active duty ones. Um, and they're able to kind of walk down the Capitol, make sure this coup goes well. But it's like, it's very different where in 1941, Romania basically voluntary and joins this invasion. And, you know, the, the German army never occupies. They're invited in. There's a German military mission to Romania, but it's never occupied. You know, their allies, you know, Romania voluntary, voluntarily joins the Axis. Whereas with after 23rd of August, 1944, when Romania, quote unquote, switches sides, the turning of arms, as they would say, as, as kind of the term becomes known. Um, the Soviets occupy Romania. They enforce an armistice. And Article 1 of the armistice is you will provide us 12 divisions. Like, you will provide us troops. So, like, the Romanians don't have a choice. Like, if their choice would probably be we leave the axis and we're done. We don't have to fight at all. But the Soviets say, no, you don't get that option. You have to provide us cannon fodder to help finish off the uh, Nazi Germany, and we're going to occupy your country and treat you as an occupied, defeated enemy. So it's it's a it's not a willing. We're joining the Allies, yay! 
which is how they try to present it kind of after the war. It's like, yeah, we, this is the side we always wanted to be on. Well, it's like, no, you chose to be on the Axis side really enthusiastically, and then you were forced the very last minute by a small group. I'm sorry, but, and then only because a small group decided to do it. Because there's every indication that they would have kept fighting if the monarch hadn't had this coup. And if Antonescu had stayed in power, he would have kept the army fighting. He probably would have retreated up into the Transylvanian mountains and kind of tried to create a kind of last hold there. Like it would have been kind of what happens with Hungary um, later on. Can I add a comment? Sounds like Osho a little bit, doesn't it? Mm, no. <laughs> we, were, we were so not complicit in anything and we were occupied and we were the first victims of Nazi Germany. It's kind of similar, if you want to put it that way, where the remains are like, we never would have joined the Axis except Hitler forced us to. We yeah. had to fight the communists. Well, did you have to murder all those Jews too? We had we to fight the communists. We didn't do it. We didn't do it like the French. I was going to say, my, my granddad was in Austria in '45. As of British occupation, I'll just get that out now. Um, they, they were they they were fairly complicit. They, they, from he, he was in he, he could speak German. He was on the interrogations, and there were some interesting people that he spoke to. So that they never at any point say, "Yay, cool, we we didn't want to do this," or "Yeah, we're, we've been liberated by the Allies." They were they they were complicit. Not anymore, they're not. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, it's the post-war you know, narratives that you know the same thing. The Romanians at the time didn't say a lot of this stuff, but like. Now it's how it's spun in the decades after and today, you know, where it's like, especially since communism, the communists focused on the last nine months, the anti-Hitlerite anti war. And they don't talk about, they kind of cut out for, you know, 40 years and you talk about um, the Holy War, you know, the first three years and the Holocaust is taboo. So then when the 90s come along, you have this heroic anti-Hitlerite narrative and then they just bring up this heroic anti-communist narrative that's whitewashed of all the problematic stuff and put them together. And so then, yay, we get to fight communism and Nazism because we Romanians are so horribly treated and betrayed by the West who, if they'd only stood up in 1936 or 38 or 40, we would have been, we would have never done this stuff. Ignore the fact that we were butting up to Nazi Germany and passing anti-Semitic laws in the 30s, and they had a giant fascist movement. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's great to have you on the podcast finally, and it's great to finally be able to cover something that we've had a massive gap in the history for, especially on History Hack. But I'm going to let Chris do the ending, because I always suck at it, and he is so much better than I am. Well, after my intro. <laughs> you started it wrong, you might as well end it right. Yeah, but yeah, no. I've, I, clearly, obviously, I didn't know that much about Romania in the in the Second World War either. So, but it's, so it's been really interesting. And um, would you mind just reminding everyone uh, the title of your book and when it's due out? So my book is out. Uh, it's been out for a little bit now. But it's called Romania's Holy War: uh, Soldiers, Motivation, and the Holocaust. It's from Cornell Press, uh, Cornell University Press, and it's actually going to be coming out in Romanian for any Romanian listeners you have. Uh, from Editora Corinth, and hopefully this year, hopefully in a few months. Cool, and we'll uh, we'll try and get it onto the uh, History Hack Bookshop. Uh, that way, um, every sale, the podcast will get a small amount of the money, 
and you'll get more money than if it was, I've got to stop saying this, but uh, sold through a rainforest-themed website that, <laughs> that's probably building its own weapons of mass destruction to target my flat after all, the sli- <laughs> all, the, all these comments. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. No, no, thank you for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.